open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. And we are continuing our study here in the first book of the New Testament. And before I begin the message today, I I have a few words that I'd like to speak to those of you that have not been with us through this entire study. Here at Berean, we believe that the best way to study the Bible is to take it verse by verse. And we take the Bible and we explain what the scriptures mean. In late 2008, we began a study in the book of Matthew, and now here in the beginning of this year, 2012, we've just now arrived at the 12th chapter. And we're a little bit slow in our progress. And uh, I, I hope that you'll forgive me for that. Uh, some of you will forgive me for my fascination with the scripture because I think it's very important that we understand what we read, why it's written here, what does it all mean. And so that's why we're very careful and we go slowly as we read the scriptures. And some of you might not think that the text that we're reading today is very important at all, that the subject is not very important. But it's actually a very important subject because it's integral to the reasons why that Jesus was crucified. Now we're slow about our study in several ways uh, because we consider Matthew to be one of the most important books of the Bible. Here's where we learn about the life of Christ and in one way or another everything that you read in the Bible has something to say about God's eternal purpose for his creation and how God affects that his own creation through Jesus Christ coming into the world as a man is very, very important to our learning and our understanding of who God is. Some time ago, I was reading a book that greatly upset me because the author of this book, who claims to be a, or is recognized as a theological expert, seemed to believe that God purposely limits his sovereignty so that man has as much authority over his life and his destiny as God does, as much control or even greater than God does. And we would dispute that because we believe that God is the ruler of all things, that God controls all things, and he does that for his own glory. And we believe in the certainty that Christ came to this earth to be born and to live and die as a man. He came to bring salvation to us. And the ultimate end of that salvation is actually the glory of God. And so we see here in the book of Matthew that Matthew is very careful to point out to us the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the purpose of Christ. And the purpose of the gospel of Matthew is to present to us Jesus as the king Jesus has a kingdom, and he rules in that kingdom. He rules over all of heaven and earth. And when Jesus came to this earth, he brought kingdom promises with him, and he told the people that if they would receive him as the king, if they would repent of their sins and believe in him, then the kingdom promises would come to them. But for the most part, the people didn't receive Christ when he came. They didn't receive him as the king. They doubted him. They criticized him. They became indifferent towards him. And that's what we've learned in the first 11 chapters of Matthew. We see this progression of Jesus' ministry and how people begin to doubt, criticize, and to be indifferent. But we arrive here now at chapter 12, and this chapter actually becomes pivotal in the life of Christ. This is a turning point, because now the doubts and the criticisms and the indifference will turn into blasphemy. 
and they'll turn into the ultimate rejection of him and total hatred of him. And that's what leads to the death of the cross. The turning point that we're reading about here in Matthew 12, the beginning of this chapter, is the Sabbath. And that might not seem to be too important to us, and we would hardly think that the difference between Jesus and the Jews or the people that crucified him was the Sabbath. But this is actually the subject that had such dire consequences concerning the crucifixion of Christ. This is the issue that goes right to the heart of the matter, of why Jesus was rejected and crucified. Now, if you'll stand with me as we read God's Word this morning, if you'll look in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse number 1, we'll read down to verse number 14, and we'll continue our study of this passage in a second message about the sovereign of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest." Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day." And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not lay hold on it and lift it out. How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And what an important passage that we have before us. Lord, open up our understanding to this and help us to see how this is so important in the life of Christ and even in our own lives. We thank you for the reading today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to look again at verse number 2. The disciples were, and Jesus were walking through a wheat field, and the disciples became hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of the grain and to eat them. Verse number 2 says, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Now there is the crux, there is the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. What he and the disciples did was considered by the Pharisees to be an unlawful act. Uh, The heart of the Pharisaical system was in keeping the commandments of God, All of these laws that God gave to Moses and the pinnacle of all of the commandments was the observance of the Sabbath. And so if you wanted to distill all of the teachings of the Pharisees down into one central issue, into one doctrinal position, it would be what you could or what you could not do on the Sabbath. 
To them, their righteous standing with God was determined by the activities of the Sabbath. Well, why was it that the Sabbath was so important to them? Well, we looked at this in the beginning of the message last week, and we talked about the principle of the Sabbath. And I'm sure that uh, those of you that are from my generation, that you are well acquainted with the Ten Commandments, and, and those of you that uh, grew up when I grew up knew, know that you didn't really have to be a Christian to know something about the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are, were posted on the walls of the school classrooms, and in some cases, learning those commandments was a part of your school day. Reciting them was something that you did on, a, on at least a weekly basis. And one of those commandments that concerned the Pharisees more than any other is the fourth commandment, where the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God said that there is one day among seven that's to be set apart as holy. And that's a word that means sanctified. It means that the uh, Sabbath was a sanctified day. It was God's day, and it was to be set aside as God's day of worship. Sabbath is a word that means cessation. And so it was a day to cease from work and to cease from regular activities. When God created the world, he created it in six days. And then on the seventh day, God rested. And God gave the Sabbath. And he gave that to man as a day of rest. He gave it as an example for man. It was a day of refreshment and of remembrance. And so to observe the Sabbath day was to recognize that God is the creator of this universe and he is the one that rules our lives. Now all of that you could understand is well and good. That, that's, that sounds good. The Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments. The commandments are to be observed. The principle should be observed. Even though we no longer worship God on the seventh day of the week, we don't worship on Saturday, yet the idea that we have one day of worship is retained in the Sunday observance because here we come together to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He arose on the first day of the week. So the principle of the Sabbath, the idea that there is a time of remembrance for God's work is still to be practiced today. And we would have to say there's nothing at all wrong with that principle. Nothing wrong with that. God expects us to do it. But there was something terribly wrong with what the Jews had done with the Sabbath. Next, we looked into the problem of the Sabbath, and I had just barely enough time to touch on that last week. And so we're going to expand on this a little bit this morning to show you what the Jews had done to the Sabbath and why they were so upset that Jesus and his disciples walked through that wheat field, plucked off the ears of the grain, and and ate them. And that was something that was okay to do at any other time of the week. That was perfectly fine, but it was not okay to do on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was very serious business to the Jews. Uh, Reading the Old Testament, you'll find that it contains many promises and blessings for observance of the Sabbath day. And also along with that, you'll find that there are very severe curses for not honoring the Sabbath, not being faithful to it. And Israel, being God's chosen people, was to observe the Sabbath day because that's one of the laws that God gave them. And the reason that uh, Israel was destroyed or the country was taken over by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians, the reason why Jerusalem had been torn down and why the temple was destroyed can be tied right back to Israel's refusal to worship God on the Sabbath day. Now, by the time that Jesus came, there was a 
pharisaical system that arose in which the Sabbath became the focal point of the religion. It had become the apex of Jewish law. And their system of righteousness, it was all tied to what you did on the Sabbath day. And so to desecrate the Sabbath was one of the most serious offenses that a person could commit. And so if the Jews were going to find something to fault Jesus in, then the very worst thing that he could do was to violate their laws concerning the Sabbath. Well, the problem here is that the Jews really didn't understand the real principle of the Sabbath. And rather than it being a burden for God's people, the Sabbath day was intended to be a blessing for them. But what had happened, the observance of the Sabbath day had changed, and what the Jews had changed it into, they had just totally perverted the purpose of it. So we look at that, the perversion of the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day given for man's enjoyment. It was given as a day as a, of expression for God's love for man. You see, God knows our makeup, and he knows what's best for us. He knows our needs. He knows what it takes to preserve man and to promote his welfare. And so God didn't want us to kill ourselves with work. He gave the Sabbath day to bless man, and he intended that we would reflect God's love in the observance of that Sabbath and also our love for our fellow man. See, if you analyze the Ten Commandments, you'll find out that God includes commandments that preserve God's honor and his glory. There are commandments that promote our love for God, but you also find that there are commandments that promote our love for our fellow man. And that's why we're told not to kill and not to steal, why we're not to commit adultery, why we're not to lie against our fellows. And so the commandments are divided into two essential parts. The first part tells us about love for God. Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then the second part of the commandments concern loving your neighbor as yourself. And so all of the commandments are given to promote two essential areas of man's makeup, and that is his spiritual relationship with God and his physical relationship with his fellow man. But the problem with the Pharisaical system was instead of it being a great blessing for man, the Sabbath had actually become the worst nightmare In their system, the people had become terribly burdened with all the requirements that had been added to the Mosaic law. It had been misinterpreted. And so when God said that they were to rest from their labors on the Sabbath, the Jews concerned themselves with what is it that constitutes labor? What can't we do on the Sabbath day? And instead of looking at the Sabbath day as how it helps man, They were more interested in how they could define what work is. And so the Sabbath was changed from a day of life-giving freedom and blessing to a day of rituals and restrictions. The Sabbath was all about the rituals and the restrictions. You see, the way to please God in their estimation was to prove to God how well that they could keep the Sabbath. And so that became the way of salvation for them. If they were going to please God and get right with him, then they had to keep the Sabbath to the nth degree. Now, the Sabbath means a day of cessation, a day of, of ceasing from work. And so if that's what the Sabbath is, then by all means, we must discover what constitutes work. You have to stay away from work on the Sabbath. And so what they did was they labored to figure out what work is. What can you do? What can't you do on the Sabbath? And in the process of trying to be pleasing to God, they turned the Sabbath day into the most painful day of the week. 
I mean, Sunday through Friday in your regular work was far to be preferred. It was far more pleasant than this supposed day of rest that God had given. So it all came down to this. What do you do or what don't you do on the Sabbath? And so they had thrown in an additional set of laws that helped them to determine what they could and what they could not do on the Sabbath. Now, you need to understand that the Jews have more writings than just the Holy Scriptures. There's also what's called the Jewish Talmud, and that is a collection of Jewish works that tell us about the traditions that outlines the laws and the customs of Judaism. It's not inspired, but it's things that the rabbis wrote down and things that they were to abide by. When you read the Old Testament, you'll find that there are only a few verses that have to do with the Sabbath. Very few, in fact, and it tells you about Sabbath-day observance. But in the Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, there are 24 chapters that are devoted to requirements of Sabbath law. And those chapters were studied and still are studied very diligently by Orthodox Jews. And in some cases, they even spend years in one chapter trying to figure out all of the restrictions and what they mean. I'll give you some examples of that. For instance, there there were laws concerning the amount of travel that you could do on the Sabbath day. And if you went beyond the limit, then you are in violation of the Sabbath. The law said that you could travel no more than 3,000 feet from your home. And so if you went beyond that, you broke the Sabbath. But in interpreting that you could go 3,000 miles from your home, then they had to determine, well, what constitutes a home? We have to define home. And so they determined that a home is a place where you eat. Now, they couldn't prepare anything to eat on the Sabbath day, but they could eat. And so they figured that if they were going to expand the definition of the home, or if they could do that, then you could go beyond this 3,000 feet and what you would normally think of as your home. And so if you lived in an area where there were very narrow streets or there was an alleyway, what you could do is you could put a rope barrier at the end of that alleyway and place some food there, and that constituted a home. It's got food in it, and the rope makes an entrance, and so that's your home. And so now you can go another 3,000 feet beyond that. And I suppose that if you kept doing that, if you kept putting up ropes along the alley and kept putting some food there, that you could actually scheme your way all over town if you wanted to without violating the Sabbath. But of course, you had to plan very well to do that. You had to be ahead of the game in order to figure out how you could get around town on the Sabbath day. There were things that you could carry and you couldn't carry on the Sabbath day. There were things that you could move into one certain spot, but you couldn't move it into another spot. Taylor could not carry a needle on the Sabbath. A student couldn't carry his pen. You couldn't shake the, the dust out of your clothes before putting them on because you might accidentally find that a bug had crawled in there and then you'd be tempted to kill the bug and that would be work. And so that would violate the Sabbath. You couldn't light a fire. You couldn't boil an egg. You couldn't pour cold water into warm water, but you could pour warm water into cold water. You couldn't take a bath because if you did, you might spill some on the floor and that would constitute washing the floor and so you'd be in violation of the Sabbath because that's work. You couldn't move a chair because if you did, it might make a rut in the floor. That would constitute plowing and you can't plow on the Sabbath day because that's work. And then ladies, you you couldn't look into a mirror to put your jewelry on 
Because if you did that, you might accidentally see a gray hair. And if you plucked out that gray hair, then you'd be guilty of work. And so you violate the Sabbath. And that, that kind of really puts a whole different perspective on it, doesn't it? Getting ready for church on Sunday morning. I mean, when I grew up, people were very, very cautious and careful about what they wore to church. And uh, you always looked to see if you were at your very best when you got to church. And, and so you would just stand in front of the mirror. You put on your Sunday best. You would primp and you would adjust and you would straighten and make sure that you, everything looked like it was supposed to look. But the Jews would go crazy with the law like that. They would never allow anything like that because all of that was work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. You couldn't put a radish into salt because it might turn into a pickle and that would be work. You couldn't spit. You couldn't get dirt out of your clothes. You couldn't put an olive in your mouth and find out that that olive was bad and it tasted bad and you spit it out. You couldn't put another olive in your mouth because if you did, your mouth had already tasted an olive and so that would be work to do it a second time. And there are just thousands of these things, thousands of these laws. That's just, just a very, very small uh, portion of what these 24 chapters deal with. And the Jews spent all of their time arguing in those things and interpreting those things. And in the end, they weren't even quite sure what you could do and what you couldn't do. I remember in our trip to, on our trip to Israel a few years ago that you could see that these same kinds of traditions are still found among the Orthodox Jews the one thing that you avoid doing on the Sabbath day is getting into the wrong elevator at your hotel. Now, there, in our hotel in Jerusalem, there were three elevators in the lobby. And the center elevator was automatic on, on Saturday. You didn't have to push any buttons on this elevator. And so when you got on the elevator, it would stop at every floor. And the door would open and close whether anybody was there or not. And that was so that somebody observing the Sabbath would not have to push the buttons on the elevator. Because that constitutes work. So you can imagine that was a pretty slow elevator. It stops at every floor whether anybody's there or not. Well, I didn't know that. And so on the first Saturday, Sabbath that we were there, I, I looked at these three elevators and two on the other, one on the other side of this elevator were packed full of people and the one in the center had nobody in it and so I said I'm smarter than all these people so I'll just get into the center elevator and I'll get to my room before anybody else does and so I rode up this elevator stop on one on two on three on four on five the door opens and closes nobody comes in nobody goes out and I thought I was really smart but I arrived at my floor a day later than everybody else (laughs) So Israel, this is what they, these are the kinds of things that these Jews did. Even today when you go to Israel, an Orthodox Jew on the Sabbath day will not open a door. He'll stand at a door until somebody comes along and goes through and then he scoots in so that he doesn't have to do the work of opening that door. This is what you had in the Pharisaical system. I mean, it was a terrible burden just getting out of work, trying to figure out what you couldn't do. And then to top all of that off was the guilt of doing the wrong thing and the judgment that was heaped upon people because they didn't keep the Sabbath like the Pharisees said they were supposed to. And then even to make it worse, the religious leaders had found their way to get around a lot of these restrictions, and so they didn't observe them themselves. They just heaped it on the people. So they held themselves to a different standard, and they justified themselves in doing it. And so there was no love there, there was no mercy, there was no kindness, no consideration, no compassion. They beat people over the head with their laws. 
And the Sabbath day actually became a tool to enslave the people to that false religious system. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 11, notice what Jesus says in the end of, end of, end of that chapter, verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Chapter 12 connects to chapter 11 through that statement that these people were oppressed with a very heavy burden of the law. There was no rest for the people. And so Jesus said, come to me. If you're laboring under that system, come to me and I'll give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we enter into chapter 12 after reading that statement at the end of chapter 11. And so Jesus comes into chapter 12 and he hits that religious system squarely between the eyes. He strikes a blow at their lies. He strikes a blow at their leadership that had put all of these burdens upon the people. And so he attacked them at their main heresy. And that's the issue of the Sabbath. So what did he do? Well, thirdly, today we look at the profaning of the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples broke their Sabbath. Now, it's very important for you to understand that Jesus did not break God's law. Never once did Jesus ever break any of God's laws. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. Jesus did not break God's law, but he did break the Pharisees' law. He took that 24 chapters of the Talmud and he stomped all over it. Now, the Pharisees were always looking for ways that they could trap Jesus. They looked for some condemning act. And here is a place where their wildest dreams came true because Jesus and the disciples broke the Sabbath and they were right there to watch him do it. Now, how they got 3,000 feet beyond their house to be in that wheat field, who knows? I mean, that's their reasoning, who knows? But they were there and Jesus was ready for them. They said, you are breaking the Sabbath. Now, you need to understand the full implication of that. If Jesus broke God's Sabbath, then he can't be from God, can he? God, God never does anything wrong. God never breaks laws. God, God never sins. And so if they could pin this on Jesus breaking the Sabbath, then they can say, he's not God. He's not the Messiah. Folks, here is the real issue behind the crucifixion. They crucified him for this. They hated him for this. Now, unfortunately, what the Jews could not do, they could not put Jesus to death. And that's because the Romans were in charge. And the Romans said, you don't have the, this ability any longer. You can't condemn people to death. We do that. Well, one thing that the, the Romans would not do, they would not condemn Jesus to death for breaking the Jewish Sabbath. I mean, to them, that was just a quirk of Jewish law. That meant nothing to them at all. So what the Jews had to do, they had to find another reason. Now, this is the real reason, but they had to find something the Romans will go along with. So what did they do? They accused him of sedition. Now, the Jews, they could care, couldn't care less about sedition. They hated the Romans anyway. They didn't care if somebody was going to try to overthrow the Roman government. But they hated Jesus so much because he broke their Sabbath, he threw their laws out the window, and they wanted him crucified no matter how they had to do it. But Jesus was ready for them, and he made some more statements that angered them even more. Now, he showed them that as the Christ, that the Christ is superior to the sanctuary. 
Christ is superior to the sanctuary. Now, of course, we're talking about temple, tabernacle. Christ is superior to that. Now, in verse 3, he gives an example of David. The Pharisee said, you're doing what's unlawful to do on the Sabbath day. Now, look at verse 3. But he said unto them, have you not read what David did? When he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest. You think, well, what, what is that all about? Why does Jesus bring this up? Jesus said, have you not read? And there you can tell that Jesus is twisting the knife a little bit. He says, have you not read? Of course they've read. That's all they ever did was read the scriptures. They're experts in the scriptures. They kept reading scripture. Jesus says, have you not read? And the implication of that, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand the scriptures? Don't you understand what you're reading? And that was a strike at their ignorance of scripture. So he takes them back and refers them to this story of David. This is when David was trying to escape from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And David was hiding out in the wilderness, and his men were weary. They didn't have anything to eat. And so they went to the tabernacle and asked the priest to give them bread. Now, in the tabernacle, there was this small table that was called the table of showbread. And the priest would bake loaves of bread, these big loaves of bread, 12 of those, and they would put them on the table of showbread. Now, the number 12 is chosen because there are 12 tribes in Israel. And uh, I don't have time to get into all the typology of the, of the table of showbread, but just very briefly, that was to show us that Jesus is the bread of life and that he is the one who sustains us. So they bake these 12 loaves of bread and they put them on the table of showbread. Now, at the end of every week, they would replace the showbread. They would bake 12 new loaves. And then the loaves that they took off, the priest could eat those. And only the priests were allowed to eat those. Well, David comes along and uh, he asked the priest for something to eat. Now, they had no bread. They had nothing there. All they had was the showbread. And so they gave David this showbread to eat. Now, what day of the week do you think that David showed up to ask them this? It was on the Sabbath because that was the day they changed the bread. Now, the law said, the law was strict about this. The law said only priests can eat the showbread. You just can't take any, any Jew and walk up to the tabernacle and say, I'm hungry and I want something to eat. But here comes David and his men. They've been pursued by Saul. They're starving to death and, and they're famished here. They've they ha- got to have something to eat. And so the priest took that showbread and gave it to them. Now, why did Jesus bring that up? Well, he brings this up because to the Pharisees, that should have been at the top of the list of things you can't do on the Sabbath. You certainly can't go to the Sabbath and ask priests for the showbread. That belongs to them. But that's what happened. David went and he got it from the priest and God didn't rebuke David. And so what are the Pharisees going to do with that example? Here's David, their great king. They honor and they revere. What are they going to say about him? Now, that proved that the sanctuary, sanctuary was subject to God. And I want you to understand this clearly, that when it comes to human need, God is not uncompassionate. It is more holy to preserve life than it is to keep a rule. Life is holier than the sanctuary. And so God permitted this. And the question here for the Pharisees is, why aren't you more concerned with human need than about all of your rules? Now, what the Pharisees would do was they would let a person starve to death before they would break a rule. God's law permitted this, 
But you know where the Pharisees were stuck in trying to reason this out? They would be arguing over, what does it mean to starve? How hungry do you have to be before you can eat the showbread? I mean, how, 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 how starved or how emaciated would you have to be? How far gone do you have to be? before you can eat the showbread. And they'd be arguing over that question. And all the while, the guy standing there needing something to eat, he'd die while he's waiting for them to decide that question. Now look at verse number five. He's not through with them on this issue of the sanctuary. He says, or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Now there's another blow to their reasoning about the Sabbath. The priest profane the Sabbath day. Well, how was that? I mean, how do the priests profane the Sabbath? Well, you can't light fires on the Sabbath. Remember I said that a moment ago? They said, also, you can't kill an animal on the Sabbath. And yet, what do the priests do? You can't have a sacrifice without killing the animal. And you can't get him up on the altar without physically picking him up and putting him up there. And you can't burn him unless you light a fire. Here's what happens when you start to add... To God's law, you end up with all kinds of unreasonable positions. You come to theological dead ends because your mind is not designed to compete with God. People can't add anything to God's word. You can't add anything to what God says. He's the only one that knows the end from the beginning. God's the only one that knows all contingencies. And you think about that comment that I started with about that guy who said that God purposely limits his sovereignty so that he doesn't interfere with our choices? What do you think would happen if that was true? What do you think would happen in that scheme? God knows that all of your choices are wrong. You know why? Because you're a sinner. He knows your choices are wrong. You're always going to make bad choices. And so if God leaves you alone, you will continue to make a mess of things just like you always have. So you need God to show you the right way, don't you? Would you ever want God to limit his sovereignty? Why would you ever want to do that? You think God's going to do something wrong? You think if God is God, you let God be God, so to speak, that God's going to do something wrong and he's going to hurt you? How preposterous is that? So the Pharisees tampered with God's word. They threw some of their human reasoning into it, and when they did, they spoiled the meaning of it. God's word is perfect and infallible, and if people start tampering with it, they're going to run afoul of the truth. And that's what the Pharisees did. They were adding all of their man-made rules, and so what happened? They destroyed God's character in doing this. They didn't understand who God is. Well, Jesus is about to tell them who God is. Look at verse 6. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. This statement, in this place, is one greater than the temple. You know what he's saying there? I mean, this is one of those many instances where Jesus claimed to be God. There's so many people that say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. How could he be God? He wasn't God. He's a man. He's a good man. He's a, he, he did this. He's a good teacher. He's a good moral example. But he's not God. This is exactly what Jesus is saying right here. In this place, there's one greater than the temple, and he's talking about himself. Who is greater than the temple than the one who gave them the temple? Who is greater than the temple than the one whom the temple represents? He is God. And so doesn't he have the right to define the Sabbath? He's the one that gave them the Sabbath. Verse 7 he says, But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So if God was going to use the Sabbath for the good of man, what would he do on the Sabbath day? 
He would do things that help people, wouldn't he? Isn't that what God would do? Would he be concerned about the rule or would he be concerned about helping people? And so the issue of sacrifice is brought up here. What good is a sacrifice if you don't learn the character of God from it? God's not going to ask for a meaningless sacrifice. God is a God of mercy. The sacrifice is pointed to God's mercy. That although God, that man is sinful and that we've broken God's laws repeatedly, yet God will forgive us because of a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is Jesus himself, the once-for-all sacrifice that brings us the forgiveness of sins. God, in his mercy, provided a sacrifice. But what happens if you try to take mercy out from under the sacrifice? Then what is the meaning any longer of a sacrifice? You see what he's getting at here? That's the destruction of God's character. And in that seventh verse... Jesus refers to the prophet Hosea and what he wrote because in Hosea's day, Israel was guilty of murder. They were guilty of adultery. They were guilty of robbery. But you know what they weren't guilty of? Making sacrifices. They still kept making sacrifices. So here's the point. What is the good of the sacrifice if there is no goodness and kindness in your heart? And so what the Pharisees did was to revere the temple and the sacrifices, but they were without compassion for people. They were the helpless, and they were the hungry, and they had no compassion. They didn't understand the scripture about David. They didn't understand it about the priests in the Old Testament. They didn't understand that every sacrifice points to a merciful and compassionate God. And if they understood that, then they never would have condemned the disciples for plucking off those heads of grain when they were hungry. You know what that means to you? As a Christian, what does that mean to you? That means all of these works that you claim to do for God and you say you're so high, uh, holy and so pious and you're such a good person. What is all of that worth if there is no kindness and compassion and mercy in your heart? It is meaningless to God. So how foolish is it to think that God is more concerned with the rituals that we do? God is more concerned with how we carry on, conduct this service, or what particular things we do in our rituals every Sunday, that God would be more concerned about that than he is about man. See, what this is trying to teach us is the character of Jesus. And Jesus' character manifests itself in acts of kindness and compassion and mercy. And those things do not come out of cold, dead hearts like the Pharisees had. It comes out of a heart that has been transformed by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, we still have letter B on your listening sheet. And that figures into the next confrontation. So I'm not going to get into letter B today. Christ is superior to the what? You've got to come back next week to find out what that one is. So for now, I just want to leave you here with some words from the Apostle Paul concerning the sacrifice of Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Now, I don't want to pull that verse out of its context. Paul said that while he was speaking of the goodness of God. And he said that God works all things to good, for good for them that love him, for those that are called according to his purpose. And then next, Paul went into God's predestination, and he talked about God's calling of us, and he talked about justification and our glorification. Then he says, He that spared not his own son 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Understand Paul's reasoning here, that if God was willing to give us Jesus, his own son, and if Jesus was willing to give up his life to come here and die for us, then do you think that God's going to refuse anything that's for our health and well-being? God is never going to make a law that prevents the well-being of man. Folks, there is no cruelty in God. Pharisees knew nothing at all about the kindness of God. And so they put their rules in front of the care and consideration of others. God did not refuse us his son. And so in no way is God going to withhold the lesser when God has given us the greatest gift of all. Do you understand what Paul is saying there? God will not hold good things for man if he gave us the best of everything, Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that you've learned that about Jesus. Again, don't think that you've done anything great for God if there's no love or compassion in your heart. I mean, don't think that you can teach Sunday school or that you can sing in the choir and witness and preach or do anything else without possessing God's character. See, a lot of people are interested in this. They're interested like the Pharisees. They're interested in catching somebody breaking the rules. And folks, if that's the way you think, you've got a long way to go to discover who Jesus really is. Jesus is the Savior that came into the world to save those who could not keep the law. There's not a one of us here that can keep God's law perfectly, and that's what God requires. And Jesus came because we could not keep God's law. Now, thank God for this. You have a compassionate Savior that kept God's law for you. And it's by him and only him that you'll be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the blessed time that you've given us together today to look into this. Lord, though we may travel slowly through the scriptures and take our time to explain these things, Yet, here we just learn so much about the character of, the, of our great God, the compassion, the love, and the mercy that he had for lost sinners. And Lord, he's teaching the people that they are to be like him. And I just pray that everyone in here would recognize we need to be more like Jesus, have that kindness, compassion, and mercy for people, caring for their physical needs, but not only that, being very, very concerned about their spiritual needs. They need to know Jesus as the Savior. So help us, Lord, to keep preaching that from this pulpit. Help people to understand what it means to know Jesus Christ and to be pardoned, to be forgiven of all their sins. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Open someone's heart to that gospel today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.